We're in Luke chapter 8 tonight. I want to invite you to be there. Luke chapter 8, we're going to come to about the middle of the chapter, verse 16. Maybe not quite the middle. It's a long chapter. But we're continuing to walk through Luke's gospel. We're going to be looking at a few verses, really three passages that are all related to one another. They are not sort of unique passages in the sense that you read the book of Proverbs, sometimes it feels like every verse is a transition. In my time in ministry, I felt that it's difficult at times to preach out of Proverbs because you, you don't have long stretches sometimes of verses. Unless you're going to preach a whole sermon on one verse, I tend to struggle with that kind of thing. And so it can be more of a challenge. Tonight, these passages, really three stories that are connected, I think you'll hopefully, if, if, I, can, if I can do this the way I'm hoping, uh, I think we'll see it a little bit more as one unified Uh, message and theme that Luke is driving home. So what I'd like to do is begin, we're going to sort of read in three sections tonight, verses 16 through 18 of chapter 8, and then we're going to say a word of prayer. Luke 8, starting with verse 16, says this, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, he puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are at the heart of worship. And for all the other distractions, all the other things we can get lost in, all the other side streets that lead us apart from where you would have us to go, uh, Father, would you draw us back Uh, Would you allow us to see the Lord Jesus word for word tonight and to hear what he would say to us through the power of your word and the movement of your Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, want to confess something to you as we begin here tonight. One of the things I did a few weeks ago was um, I saw a little advertisement for an app that I could put on my phone and this app would monitor my sleep. And so I would get to find out, you know, just how well I was sleeping, what my breathing was like and all this kind of thing. I had no idea all the things that would tell me the next morning when I woke up, well, here's how much you snored. And we even recorded it if you want to know what it sounded like and, you know, that kind of thing. And so I thought, wow, okay, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess this is something to sort of think about. Now, there's something that, that I've uh, not been able to do for a long time, and that's breathe through my nose while I was laying down on my back. I don't know if anybody else, you know, you think a nose this size, you should get plenty of airflow, but I hadn't quite done it. And so uh, for a long time, I haven't been able to do that. Well, I, I found this other little thing online, probably dangerous for me to use the internet these days, but you, you know, you get this little thing and it almost looks like uh, little butterfly wings that, that sort of like those breathe right strips, but it goes inside and opens up and all of a sudden you got these huge nostrils that let all this air through. And so now I'm supposed to be able to lay down at night and be able to sleep and, um, and I'm struggled even then because now I've got full airflow through my nose, no problem, but I keep snoring. You know why? Because after all these years, I can't train myself to close my mouth while I'm asleep. I just default back to that same old thing I've always done. Now, I actually have something I'm trying to get my wife to agree to right now. I said, honey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shave my beard off. And just for a few nights, I'm going to duct tape my mouth shut. And, uh, and I'm going to, you know, I think she's a little worried if something were to happen, the story she's going to have to tell. No, he duct taped his own mouth. It wasn't me. It, you know, it was, it was him. 
So if anything ends up on the news, I'm telling you now what, uh, what that might be. But for plenty of couples, you know, you might walk through some level of that too, where one of you snores, maybe the other one does, maybe they don't, maybe you only know when the other one snores and you don't know yourself when you snore. Our, uh, our noses were made for us to be able to breathe really well. Mine's been out of practice so long while I'm asleep that I've got to stay on my side or there's just snoring that's going to happen and I'm trying to work through it. When we think about this, what things are designed to do versus what they do, Jesus makes a similar point, you know, opening this passage by speaking about lamps uh, un, uh, lamps that would be under a jar, or where would they be? And so we begin tonight with, with Jesus speaking into the purpose of something. And perhaps for each one of us, we'd also come to that saying, you know what, if we've been out of practice for putting the lamp in the right place for long enough, is it something that we just go without even noticing after a while? Is there a retraining, as, as Pastor Brandon was mentioning just a moment ago, for this constant reminder for us that we are the missionaries to our neighborhoods, our families, our communities, this reminder of what we're called to be. And so uh, let me show you a few pictures here tonight. One that I didn't get time to show you last week that I thought was so good. This is, uh, last week we were looking at the parable of the sower and, and there was an inscription from first century Rome. Uh, and, and this you know, stone that they found says this, Death renders us free of wealth and anxiety. There's one common factor that, you know, that takes care of. It's sort of like you can't take it with you. That was sort of the statement for some of them in the first century. Whatever you're dealing with and struggling with, we talked about the thorns choking out uh, the message of the gospel in people's hearts and minds last week. And uh, the first century, even those who were apart from Christ recognized that uh, there was a way in which we could be choked out from wealth, anxiety, or other, other cares. But if you're wondering what the lamps looked like back then, if you were to go into the target of the first century, uh, you might see an assortment that looks something like this, uh, that there would be um, uh, oil in the lamps to keep them burning. If you ever sang that old song and uh, you've got the little flame that would be there at the end, uh, you've even got one here that looks like a flipper or something, and I guess you could have multiple flames coming out of that, but you'd carry that around. And interestingly enough, if you wondered what a lamp stand looked like, this is actually a picture of an archaeological dig of a stone wall, and there'd be a little stone that projected out so you could set a lamp there. And so you could light, literally have a place in the home. Uh, I don't know, if I was living in that home, I don't know how many times I would have knocked myself against that stone sticking out of the wall. Um, maybe not the most safe thing to do, but it was a place for the lamp to go. Uh, or if you had one that was going to be in the middle of the floor, I guess you could have this kind if you didn't have kids running around, uh, you know, to knock it over and, and just, you know, make everything go pouring out. But you also could have one that was a little bit portable. And so we come tonight to a passage where Jesus gives three verses that are sometimes taken on their own, but I think they relate in, in three together. I think Luke puts them together for a reason, and there doesn't seem to be a break in what Jesus is saying, and so they all are following a common theme. And so once again, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. The first blank that you've got tonight, if you're eager, if you're ready to start tackling those blanks, First line that I've got for you on your handout, the people of Jesus have been called to be light in dark places. Uh, sometimes we can put lamps in strange places. We've been called to be light in dark places, but sometimes we put, put lamps in strange places. 
We've uh, had much said recently about, um, I, I know what's been in the news with the, the revival that's taking place in Asbury and other places is the movie that's also come, about, come out about the Jesus Revolution. I know there's been much said about that in recent months. It was actually a movie that came out a few years ago uh, called Woodlawn. It was a football type story, but it also had uh, an element of the Jesus Revolution in there. And uh, Sean Astin, who plays one of the characters in that, um, he played uh, Samwise Gamgee, he played Rudy, he played a number of other roles. You might have seen him before. He was in the Goonies way back when. Uh, but um, he plays a character who really becomes the, the sort of missionary to the group at this high school that's just recently integrated. And he begins to talk about going to a Billy Graham crusade where all the lights in the stadium went out and there was one candle that was shining there at the base of everything. And from the top of that stadium to the bottom, that light in that darkness could be seen. Even one tiny, small flame on a candle uh, could, could pierce a lot of darkness, even, you know, just in that simple, uh, simple way. Jesus, I think, is making the same point that there are lamps that can be lit, nothing great in and of themselves, but if you've ever been somewhere completely dark, it doesn't take a whole lot of light to illuminate enough uh, so that people can see and, and people can be able to navigate the darkness. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar, puts it under a bed. He puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. And so Jesus makes the point that we'll see elsewhere. If he were to continue here, he could make the same point to say, therefore, let your light shine before men or before people so that people can see your light. Uh, we, we sort of sometimes have a concept in our day and age that the place where our light shines is within the bounds of this building and it's going to shine bright and then we sort of put them out and save it till next week when in reality we've, called to be, we've been called to be lights elsewhere, wherever we are. That our one light in the midst of where God's placed us uh, is oftentimes, very oftentimes, more important than even the collective light where we come together. That God has a plan for us as we are here, but He has a mission for us as we go out. And sometimes in our mindset, we think, well, what's that one program we're going to come up with as a church that's finally going to reach the world? What's that one big event? What's that one super thing that if we can just do that, that will institutionally do what the church has been called to do relationally? And the words of Jesus still come down. No one puts a lamp under a, under a basket, under a bucket, you know, the old song. You don't hide it under a bushel. No one puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. That the missionary for very many of the neighborhoods that we live in, are we ourselves, we've been called to those places to let our light shine. That no event that we could put on would have anywhere near the impact as each one of our families, each one of our individuals saying, Lord, who's the one person you've placed in my life that you've called me to? to really seek to be intentional, to reach and to love and to patiently uh, give the words of Jesus to. Verse 17, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. You know, Jesus actually makes a very similar statement in Luke chapter 12. In that context, he's talking about persecution. He's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. He's talking about things that are done against believers specifically that would be wrong and that we can trust God because God is keeping record of all of those things and there will be no wrong that's done that's hidden. In that context, he's speaking and using this same phrase in that way. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 is, is a parallel of that same context. But here in Luke 8, 
8, he's actually speaking in the context not of our, uh, our faults being made known, but the mystery of Jesus Christ being revealed. The second line that you've got there, Jesus is the mystery of the ages revealed to all humanity, which we are called to receive and believe. Jesus is the mystery of the ages. Paul uses that word to describe him later. That he's not the mystery that was kept secret, but the mystery that has been revealed. And as each chapter of the Gospels unfolds, he's further revealed, further known, further understood, further accessible for each one of us. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. That God, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, in his power, that he is at work anytime the truth about him is being made known to others. That we say all the time, don't we, that, uh, that God's word will not return void. That as we sow seed, like Jesus talks about in the parable that comes just before this passage, that it's him that is the one doing the opening of the eyes, the opening of the mind, and there's ways in which what is what is hidden, what is kept secret has been made manifest, that Jesus is continuing to show more and more of himself and the message of the gospel becoming more and more known, the more it is heard and seen, the more that light shines in the darkness. And then verse 18, take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Once again, this is a verse that's often um, taken on its own without the whole context of the chapter and sometimes interpreted very differently. I've given you the third point here that I think hopefully helps navigate this, and that's simply this. How you hear matters. How you hear matters. The value you place on hearing from the Lord will be proportional to what you take in, understand, and are moved by. You know, what I've found through the years is I remember one couple, the, the wife is with the Lord now, but it seemed like every, every time I would get up to speak, they would come up and they would say, oh, that was just the, the best message we've ever heard. That was just so wonderful. And over the years, the first few weeks, I thought, boy, I'm really knocking it out of the park. <laughs> what I came to learn over time was that that was a couple that loved the Lord. And every time they came to church, they wanted to get to hear from the Lord and they were praying that the Lord would speak to their hearts. You know, it matters more in some ways how you walk into this room than anything that I or Pastor Brandon, Pastor Parker, anybody else could contribute. That the state of our hearts when we arrive at asking the Lord to speak to us makes a tremendous impact. I believe that's the point that Jesus is making here. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. To the one who is longing to know Christ more and, and knows and has a foundation already because of the investment that they've made, that there is this growth that happens continuously for those who are latching on to what Jesus longs to give them. But from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. If you show up prideful, if you show up feeling like I already know everything, or you show up saying, I don't care about any of this, 
Sure, God can break that and shine through, and often he does, but very many times when we come with the wrong attitude, when we approach Christ with just, I've already got all this, I'm not interested, I don't, you know, if that's our attitude, often what we'll find is, no, we're not going to get the same thing as when somebody comes with a hunger and a thirsting after what Jesus would give to them or, or say to them or what the Word of God would say to them. How you hear matters. Now, let's read another three verses here. Verse 19, then his brother, uh, excuse me, his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, I don't know how that phrase would have worked on my mom and dad, uh, but... Um, but Jesus is able to do this, obviously, uh, with full knowledge <laughs> of what, what he's saying and doing. And he's not trying to give a slight to his mother and his brothers, but he is saying something important. You know, there's actually several viewpoints in history. Some of them have devolved out of strange uh, thought that said, you know, how do we interpret when it says Jesus had a mother and brothers? Well, obviously, we know about Mary's story, but there were some who said, well, wait a second. If Mary uh, had a virgin birth with Jesus, um, wouldn't it be the case that she never uh, had any other child? Well, of course, the Bible doesn't say that. It actually says the opposite, uh, that she had great many children. And in uh, some areas in the Gospels, they're named. And we are also told that Jesus had multiple sisters. And so the, the face value interpretation of that without any other context is that those are Joseph and Mary's children. We don't know by Jesus's adulthood uh, what happened to Joseph. He's not mentioned again. We assume that he passed away. Uh, but there are some who say, well, no, I don't know if we're comfortable with Mary having done that. So maybe these are children from Joseph's previous marriage, perhaps he might have had, and uh, he, his uh, you know, wife passed away. And so these are from some before time. And, and uh, then there are others who say, well, no, that's not even good enough. It must have been Jesus' cousins. Well, this, this all came out of uh, thought that continued to progress in strange ways to, to elevate Mary more and more, particularly in Roman Catholicism, to say, well, if Jesus was virgin born, then perhaps that meant that um, then, then Mary remained a virgin her entire life. Uh, and then there were those who say, well, even that's not good enough. That means that she must have given birth to, to Jesus through her side. That way as not to violate any sort of, you know, birth canal, you know, uh, things there. So those were all far after the, the biblical timeline in terms of what's written in the Bible. And so I say all that to say, when, it, when the Bible says Jesus' mother and brothers, um, that means Jesus' mother and brothers. And so uh, that's, that's who's there. And... Um, you know, come up later and say, you didn't have to go into all that. Well, maybe for some of you here, that's beneficial. His mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. Now, isn't that an interesting sort of, you know, I don't think we're supposed to ever take passages strictly symbolically, but I think there's some sort of symbolism here that the people who are the most relation, relationally close to Jesus, his mother and his brothers, that they are not as close to him. They can't get to him because of the crowd. They haven't been with him as much as the disciples have been. They haven't been with him as much as these ladies that Luke mentioned last week when we saw that have been around. So there's been these followers of Jesus, but his mother and his brothers are kind of in and out of the picture. We don't know the whole story there, but there's somewhat of a symbol here that the people who are blood related in some sense, that they are a little bit further back and the ones who have been seeking after Jesus, they're up close and, and his mother and his brothers can't make it to them. 
You know, a couple of points that I've got here for you. Number one, uh, Jesus had brothers and sisters, and can you even imagine what that shadow was like to live under? Some of you in here who were younger siblings and your older sibling was the captain of the football team and valedictorian at the high school or whatever, and you, you, know, you had to hear, why can't you be more like so-and-so your whole life? We've got four kids, and I know that there are people who write books on birth order, and I think I've seen a lot of those classic stereotypes just come out for what that, you know, it's just part of it. When you've got people vying for position and what it's like, and imagine what it must have been like for, uh, for Jesus' brothers and sisters. Whatever, whatever you couldn't live up to, boy, they really couldn't live up to. And so for all those siblings, from the best we can tell from what we're given in the Gospels, with a lot that's not been told to us explicitly, uh, it seems most likely that most of them didn't believe in the person that they had had a front row seat their entire life to until after his resurrection. So imagine missing it for that long, uh, but you recognize too that the personal side, the, perhaps the shadow or whatever other challenges there were, could you really be convinced that the Messiah was somebody who grew up in the next bedroom over. I mean, you imagine, Jesus said no, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Imagine what it was like to be in his family, in his, in his home. And so you see the challenge that those siblings would have walked would have been very unique. And the second thing that I mentioned that Jesus just drives home very simply is that the kingdom of heaven is not about blood relation, but about hearing the word of God and obeying it. Nobody has VIP access to the kingdom of heaven. There's one way, Amen. one road, one path, and that's Jesus. And there's not a path to Jesus that for some people is this and for others is this. It's always repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the single way we've all been called, the level ground at the foot of the cross. You've probably heard that phrase before. And that's a great encouragement. Uh, that there's no other, no other, well, I'm related to this person. I spent so many years doing this, this or that. You remember Jesus in Matthew 7 said, there'll be many that day who say, well, didn't we perform miracles and cast out demons and do this and do that? I think he said that so that none of us would feel like we had, well, qualifications better than that. As far as I know, I've not yet cast out a demon. I don't know about Pastor Brandon. You can ask him later. But, uh, you know, you think about miracles and all this kind of thing. Well, I'm, surely I'm good to go. And Jesus says, I never knew you chilling phrase to hear from the Son of God. Our religious credentials, our blood relations, our whatever it might be, they can't access uh, salvation. Only faith, trust, belief in Jesus. Jesus describes it by saying, hearing the Word of God and doing it. As we read the, the book of Luke, we'll see again and again that the way that that's done primarily, or at least in the beginning, is responding to the free offer of the gospel that Jesus gives. And then from there, it's the rooted growth in our life that the gospel takes, that our, our uh, what we tend to call sanctification, growing in Christ, is the result of what had happened. We, you know, we've not been saved by works, but we have been saved unto good works, uh, the fruit of God's work in our life, Christ's uh, salvation in our hearts is, is growth and work. And then the last, perhaps um, most well-known section of what we have tonight, verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. 
And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Jesus calms the storm. If you ever went to Sunday school as a kid, you had a really good chance of hearing this story, didn't you? That's in the, that's in the greatest hits right up there with Jonah and the whale and David and Goliath. But if you were going to hear a story about Jesus and it didn't involve the crucifixion, there was a really good chance it was going to be Jesus calming the storm. For a lot of us, a story we're very familiar with. Uh, some things to mention just right off the bat. Let, let me say this first. When I was in college, I can remember coming home and my parents had just gotten this new thing that I had only heard a little bit about called a DVD player. I had never really known a whole lot about them, but sure enough, it was supposed to make, you know, pictures even clearer when you came home. And almost everybody who got a DVD player that year went home from Circuit City or wherever they got it with this one movie that wasn't that great of a movie, but everybody said the special effects you got to see. And it was called The Perfect Storm. So uh, my parents didn't know anything about that movie, but they told them you got to get that movie so you can see what it's like because all these big waves and everything else. Sometimes when we've pictured what it must have been like for Jesus to calm the storm, we can, if we're not careful, have our minds affected by the uh, tremendous special effects of our day. The Sea of Galilee is not uh, the North Atlantic where uh, deadliest catch takes place, or I guess that's uh, up near Alaska. Um, it is not somewhere where you've got, you know, 40, 50 foot waves, and it doesn't have to be for this story to be meaningful. But I've found whether it's in children's books, illustrated or otherwise, sometimes we have a larger than life uh, view of this story. So you really don't have to have waves that high uh, to have a difficult situation when you're in a boat that size. And so this is a first century boat that sometimes is referred to as the Jesus boat, even though uh, that is not anything they can trace to him specifically, but was very similar and from the time period where Jesus uh, would have been on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And so uh, you can see here what's left of that one and a model of what roughly that somewhat looked like. And so a boat like that doesn't have to run into an incredible storm uh, to have a point of difficulty. Now, the Sea of Galilee, if my memory is right, is about 13 miles across in one area and about eight miles across in the other area. It's about 140 feet deep at its deepest place. And so good size uh, lake of water. It actually can get quite stormy because you probably know that the Dead Sea is the lowest elevation saltwater body of water on earth. Do you know what the lowest elevation lake on earth is, freshwater lake? It's the Sea of Galilee. And so in the bowl of all those mountains that surround it, uh, the wind and otherwise can, can actually get quite significant uh, on that sea, on that lake. And so here's a, a picture of waves on the Sea of Galilee at times when there's high winds. Uh, sometimes it can be very significant. This is a storm in March uh, 1992 where, excuse me, this is not, the previous one, this was 1992. Uh, and then this actually sent waves more than 10 feet high into one of the villages that neighbored, you know, that was right beside on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. This picture is from early in the 1900s where uh, you can see homes and everything else being pelted by waves uh, that were coming in quite high. Uh, here's one more. So the Sea of Galilee can actually get pretty tumultuous for most often looking like that. 
You could ice skate on that, couldn't you? If it was cold enough, looks like glass. And so a sea that is very calm and then could go to this very tempestuous just in a moment is uh, really where we find ourselves today for this story. Jesus got into his boat with his disciples. He said to them, let us go across to the other side. And so they set out and they sailed and he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And so enough of a, of a point of difficulty where water begins to come into the boat, the storm is enough to battle against that it makes uh, moving through the water uh, very difficult and it turns into a bad situation uh, very quickly. I, uh, probably because I was thinking too much about sleep at the beginning of this lesson, but I have there for your first point, whether it was peace or exhaustion, oh, that we could sleep like Jesus. Whether it was peace or exhaustion, oh, that we could sleep like Jesus. You know, perhaps it was that he was exhausted from the crowds, but what a tremendous trust for the path that he was going to have to walk and just knowing, imagine being the sovereign son of God who knows, all right, I'm going to go to sleep until these guys wake me up when a storm's raging. And he goes to sleep and he rests and he rests in such a way that as the water begins to come into the boat, as the wind and the waves are beating against it, he's at peace and sleeps until he's woken up by the disciples. You know, uh, I think it's, it's too bad that, that so many of us as Christians just struggle to not sleep better at night. Too many cares on our minds, too many anxieties, too many worries, too many fears, too many what ifs. And I think we should take note from the Lord Jesus that we can leave all that in our Father's hands and close our eyes. But Jesus is awoken uh, by his disciples. They say, we are perishing, we're, we're, you know, we're dying. And he awoke, and in an instant, Luke just describes it as rebuking the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased in a moment. And imagine what that was like. At this point in Luke's gospel, we have seen Jesus heal a leper. We have seen him heal a paralytic. We have seen him raise a widow's son back to life from death. All those things, incredible. But what it must have been uniquely like to watch Jesus speak to the weather and have it cooperate, to have the wind and the waves stop. I, I think I shared a few weeks ago a story that I remember a pastor sharing at some point about being on the mission field and, and speaking about uh, this story to a group of indigenous believers who had never heard the story before. And he was speaking and he, he did what we tend to do where we go into a story like this and we say, you know, Jesus calmed the storm and he can calm the storms in your life. And you can trust him. And that's not necessarily wrong to think. But all of a sudden, he noticed all these people were talking to one another in their own language. And he finally stopped and said, what, what's going on? And they said, Jesus spoke to the weather and it obeyed? And he said, yes. And we can trust him in the storms in our life too. And they said, wait a second. No, no, no. I mean, he spoke to the weather, the rain and the waves and the wind, and they stopped? And he said, well, yes, yes, he did. And they looked at each other and they said, he must be very powerful indeed. <laughs> he is. What it was like for Jesus to control the weather in front of these guys and to have it instantly stop. And I, I love the reaction that they have. They don't start high-fiving one another. This is what it says uh, in verse 25. He says to them, where is your faith? And this is their reaction. And they were afraid. They were in a storm. They thought they were going to die and then they became afraid when Jesus calmed the storm. 
And they ask this great question, who is this? <laughs> they haven't asked this question when he raised a dead man or when leprosy left or a paralytic stood up and walked. But seeing something like this, they're saying, I don't know if I'm more afraid to be in this boat or on the shore. I don't know if I'm more afraid to be with Jesus or apart from it. It's just sort of this immediate reaction. What in the world just happened? Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? On the back side of your page tonight, I've got a few things for you. The first one's this. Jesus revealed himself more fully to the disciples in this miracle. The light grew even brighter. Jesus himself is also the lamp that's not going to be put under the bed and not going to be kept under a bowl. No, he is continuing to illuminate himself more and more. And the disciples and those who are with him are seeing a greater and greater picture of his power and his wonder and his might. And the light of Jesus is growing, even if it's going to scare them in the very beginning. And the second thing, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we too quickly miss how incredible Jesus' power over nature is. We too quickly miss how incredible Jesus' power in general as displayed here over nature is. Colossians 1 verses 15 through 17 He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him were all things that were made. And since you get into this in verse 17, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. That he's over rulers and dominions and authorities. And, and you get all this, this large colossal picture of who Jesus is, that he's the one holding the universe together. By the word of his power, by the, the substance of who he is, we too quickly can miss how incredible Jesus' power over nature is. <laughs> the disciples aren't sure what to do, but they've got to get to shore and they stay in the boat. And they don't know what's awaiting them. I'm really looking forward to next week because I love the story of the, uh, the man in the Gerasenes and Jesus' interaction with him, particularly in Luke. Who is this that he commands even the winds and the waves and the water? And they obey him. In 1990, the Voyager spacecraft, I believe it was, took the farthest picture out from Earth that has ever been taken. And uh, if you've ever submitted those photos back to Eckerd or Rite Aid or whatever back in the day and you don't know what they are and then you get them back at the end, you probably have some that look like this at the end, don't you? And you say, well, I didn't know the lens cap was on. And you say, well, what's so great about that, Jonathan? The Voyager spacecraft was leaving the solar system, and as it turned around, and they still had a signal to be able to tell it, take one more picture. Sure enough, it took, turned around, faced back this way, and, turned, and took one more picture. And all of a sudden, over a long stretch of time, these signals began to come in and slowly piece themselves into an image, and the NASA scientists were so excited. And you say, well, I sure don't get it. It's a little hard to see, but if you can't see, right here, there's a tiny white dot. That's the farthest from the earth a picture has ever been taken before. Because in this tiny band of light that stretches here across, there was a tiny white dot that made it into the band, so it was illuminated just perfectly, and it was the earth. All the people who have ever lived and died right in that little dot 
all the struggles of history, all of the difficulties, all of the triumphs, all of the hopes and dreams, all of the sadness and grief, everything in between. And outside of Elijah and Enoch, the Lord Jesus, all of our physical existences were right there. I remember years ago hearing or seeing this picture for the first time, Louis Giglio, some of you will know his name, was sharing this and he said, now, I don't say that to make you feel small. You are small. <laughs> I don't have to say that you are. And the Lord Jesus who holds all the universe together cared so much for his creation in that tiny white dot that he came to the earth that he lived among us even to be scorned and despised and rejected. And he calmed the wind and the waves. And he raised the dead. He made the lame to walk and the blind to see and a host of other things. And he didn't do that because of our greatness. He did that because of his greatness. Amen. Last point you've got tonight. Jesus' power should give us comfort in our own smallness. It's probably not a word, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. I'm not trying to make you feel small. You are small. But the King of Heaven loves you and has gave Himself for you. So let's worship and wonder at His power and rejoice in Him tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the power and the might and the worth and the love of the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us small creatures on a tiny white dot in the vast expanse of the heavens. And so, Lord, with a message as great as that of a storm, wind, calming Savior, would you allow us and help us to not put our lamp under a basket, under a bed, or where the light can't shine. Would you help us to relationally love, care, be patient, and extend the words of grace and truth for people who desperately need it? Lord, would you guide us in that as only you can? And with the same power that calmed the wind and the waves, be shown in light shining into darkness and hearts and minds and eyes being opened to the hope of Jesus. Father, we thank you. We look to you tonight in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.